welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we are interviewing Stephen Harron, who is one of the producers on the His Dark Materials TV series. This episode contains spoilers for the Amber Spyglass book and the TV series. So if you've not read or watched both, please come back when you're all caught up. Hello. Hello. It's a special interview episode. Yeah, another interview. We love it. We love it. We're getting to interview so many great people and uh, it's just great. I still never ceases to amaze me whenever we speak to anybody on this TV series, how lovely everybody is and how Mm -hmm. much work and thought goes into every single second of this series. It's amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So this episode, we're talking to one of the producers on the show, Stephen Harron, who has honestly worked across so much of the show from editing to sound to visuals to being a producer on the shoot. I, how did he get it all done? How? I have no idea. Asking him his job description and what it is he works on on the series is like, it's like trying to find multiple needles in this massive haystack of just like all this stuff that he does and yeah trying to pin it down I feel like we should make up a new title for him that's just like I can't think of a better way of saying the guy that pins down the vibe yeah that's kind of what he does right the vibe guy the vibe (laughs) vibe guy guy. yeah for sure yeah it was yeah it was so interesting to speak to Stephen it's the first time that we have spoken to somebody that works in that area of the show um, it was really interesting to hear him talk about the turn of the show, the editing of the show, the music. And we talked a lot about the Malefa world and how that worked. And that was really interesting. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just great to speak to Stephen. Yeah, so, so great. So yeah, as always, you have been warned, there will be spoilers for all the way up to the end of season three of the TV series mm. and therefore also the books. And yeah. I guess without further ado, we should get into it and say hi to yes. Stephen. Yes, yes, yes. Let's get into it. So hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to uh, to speak to you. Um, and I guess jumping straight in, it'd be great if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work on the series and what your role is on the series. So um, I started off as an editor on the show on season one, um, Four, four long years ago. Um, and what happened was I came on a bit late to it. So I, I came on after the shoot of season one, or rather after the main bit of the shoot, but before we shot uh, Will's World. Um, so there was a kind of a little uh, momentary gap before we got into that kind of subsection of the season. Um, and at first I was supposed to be just looking at the editing of early episodes in the season. Um, because they were trying to find the kind of tonality of them um, and just trying to finesse. And um, myself, another editor, started together at that point. And then um, as we kind of settled, as things kind of settled while we worked on it, I began to take a slightly different role, which was to help oversee creative post-production on the show. So visual effects was in full flow at the time already when I joined. Um, so I was only kind of tangential to that apart from trying to get the visual effects to work dramatically 
on the season on the episodes that I was working on. Um, but then I suppose that the main things I started to do on season one, um, creatively beyond editing, were looking after the music with the execs, and then doing kind of the rest of the creative post, which means all the sound, sound design, um, the way that the the sound mixes feel for the show, um, the color grading, things like that. So just kind of helping bring the, the kind of creative package together. Um, and then on season two, because they had kind of shot season two directly after finishing World's World in season one, so it was pretty uh, chaotic scramble. Um, I then, having delivered season one, went back as a producer on season two to oversee editing with the editors and then do creative post again. And then season three, because luckily there was a bit of a gap, um, I, I came back as a producer a bit earlier. So um, I was there from kind of re, uh, reasonably early script development and um, working with the entire team to kind of uh, help bring it together. And then lo and behold, two years later, we have a show that apparently is going to broadcast or is broadcasting as we speak, I think. <laughs> and it's great. So, I mean, yeah, we've told you before, we've kind of, we've already watched the whole season. Lucky you. Season three, and it is... It is lovely. Did you, had you read the books before you got involved with the project? And if so, kind of like, where were you at in your life when you read them? Or did you read them when you found out you'd be coming on board the project? Or have you read them at all? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have a, a fairly webbed answer to it. Uh, I, I had a tangential relationship with the books. Um, I knew of them, friends read them, friends loved them. Um, I had seen the film. I'd seen the film in the cinema when it came out. Um, so I was reasonably familiar with that. Didn't obviously understand all the things that they got wrong, uh, but did understand some of the things they got right, um, especially later on. Um, and I had spared read Northern Lights um, around the time I took the job um, and didn't have time to read The Subtle Knife until I think close to finishing it, uh, the show that is. And then I, I managed to read Amber Spyglass properly before getting into the start of season three. And then periodically like, over time, I've flipped through them. And even recently, actually, I was flicking through Amber Spyglass, having, you know, almost finished the show just to see, you know, where where we kind of sat in relationship to it. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I, I think I think, of course, I would say this. I think it was a benefit to not be deep in the weeds particularly on season one, because I was simply looking at does it play dramatically? Um, and I would say I took something closer to an audience's point of view, um, especially an audience who don't really understand it. Um, and I think, as I say, I think that was a benefit because I was concentrating on what works dramatically on screen and what kind of what felt right. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that I guess you have like such a broad spectrum of, of things that you've worked on with the show. Do you have, in amongst all that, do you have a favourite area that you've worked in for the show? Um, I think the the thing that I feel the closest to, just because of my experience, is the editing, especially what we call a fine cut, which is once you've got beyond the shoot and you've you've got really got into deep refining on on the way that each episode plays. So that's the thing that I have the the closest relationship to, and and um, you know get you know, maybe the most tangible pleasure out of, but at the same time, uh, the music would be my second uh, favorite. Um, and I'm not musically trained but beyond being a mediocre kind of guitarist, um, but, but I, I get the most 
pleasure maybe out of that out of the things that i don't have like natural uncanny ability for um and i, I kind of you know that that was one of the key things in trying to find the tonality of the show throughout um, and trying to work with lauren and his team uh, through finding that yeah that's the thing that kind of gives me it gives you the most kind of goosebumps because it's the thing which there's a there's a there's a, a an amount of magic that goes on um within music that only a kind of composer can provide and which i can only provide a response to or a bit of guidance on and um the composer and his team fill that gap if you know what i mean so so when that gap is filled it's kind of amazing um kind of intangible whereas a lot of the other elements um i feel or i think a lot of people probably feel on the team that they have a a kind of a more microscopic ability to to find the way for those things to work whereas music is something that is by its nature is kind of slightly beyond that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how does that um because i'm really the music for the show is incredible and we're really interested um and we managed to speak to Lorne Balf. I think it was, was it after season one? I think it was. It was the first interview we ever did, wasn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> um, He's a great raconteur. Yes, he, he is great. And I just wondered if you could go into, I guess, a little bit more detail on how you would work with him. As you mentioned, as like, you're not a musician yourself. How does it work, like providing, you know, feedback and notes and stuff to somebody like Lorne? Well, we kind of got into we kind of got into a rhythm over the seasons. By the time you get to season three, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a machine and we've got really heavy dates that we have to hit. So it becomes a bit kind of, it can feel a bit industrialized sometimes. But so it's quite difficult to, to make sure that you keep the feeling running through it. Um, Cause it can start to, you just got a lot to get through and you, you, you know where, what your start and end points are much more clearly than on the season one. So on season one, you're really trying to find it, you know, from scratch and, you know, you, you mix and match ideas and mix and match ways of approaching things. Um, there was a lot of kind of, there was a reasonable amount of kind of face to face on season one. I, I think I think by the time we got to season three in truth and after the kind of result of the COVID way of working on season two, we settled into much more of a kind of email and chat, uh, video chat type um, process, um, which to be honest, actually, work very well and we just have to work at such a breakneck speed that you know whatever works for everyone is, is the best way you were saying about how like a lot of your job involves kind of like setting and keeping the tone of the series and the pace of the series and it is really clear whenever if you were to just flick through the channels i think we would both agree that if you were to come across an episode of his right. materials completely randomly it doesn't matter which season but you would know from the vibe exactly what it was how difficult is it or how do you go about setting that and kind of maintaining that because i know there's loads of different stuff involved with i guess it's the whole team but yeah yeah i mean the the truth the truth is you just find you do find it um and you find it across season one i think if you looked at season one um scientifically microscopically you would probably find that the tone settles or, or that it kind of ebbs and flows but but that also comes partly from by its nature the way that the story works in season one it naturally kind of goes through different movements and shades um and and also the tonality of the show is uh quite varied and, and i think you know it was initially probably trying to find a balance of 
light versus shade, I would say. And my my first guiding principle, I didn't think about it particularly um, intellectually when doing it, but I think when looking back, you know, you're trying to hone in for me on the performances and trying to work out what how the performance is going to lead you through. So specifically on season one, honing in on what Daphne and Ruth are giving you and how to kind of um, sustain that, create it, create the bond. Um, I think that, I think it's true to say that, you know, the great, the best moments were largely between them, you know, and, and, and of one of the maybe slight downsides of the way that the story goes across the seasons is you just don't get a lot of them together, and it, which is a shame, which is why one of the best moments in season two is when they face off in F5, I think it is. Um, and we have, we get a bit of them in season three, but, but yeah, so the performances were probably the first guiding principle um, because they're giving you, you know, everything to play with. In regards to kind of what you were saying there about how like a lot of the times it's the smaller performances and the smaller scenes that kind of guide you through, how was it with season three approaching that? Because there is such a uh, harsh contrast between these tiny little nuanced moments between characters like Will and Lyra or Lyra and Mrs. Coulter and then these like quite epic large battle scenes and big speeches from Asriel that should feel very tonally different but they do sit really well together. How did you manage that <laughs> well I, I think that the the thing that like the big takeaway that i had from season two um which was something that we tried to instill in season three and i think everyone was, was looking for it simultaneously was how to make sure that we brought scale in um and i i think that that meant on one level one level that meant making sure that there was a, a reasonable amount of shooting on location um I think we were, in my view, I think we were slightly hamstrung in season two by, you know, a, a lack of location shooting, although Chittagatsu was a fantastic set to shoot in. Um, but by three, what you're trying to do is, especially because you're traversing multiple worlds, you really have to go for scale as much as you can. And also the nature of the story has tremendous scale. So um, I guess the key, in terms of how you, you unite it, it's just about trying to keep the story coherent. So, um, you know, on one hand, the Mary story in Malefa World in season three is tonally very different, for example, from Asriel's. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's all supposed to cohere into one, especially by the time you get to the end of the season. So it's just about keeping your priorities very, very clear. And one of the, you know, so some of that's about feeling. Um, but one of the ways you do that is via music. So you make sure that the music is kind of emotionally pulling you in all the way through um, and not kind of going through too many different types of approach, you know? So although what Lauren does fantastically well is write specific character themes or uh, motifs for worlds and what have you, and we introduced some new themes this season to help us with that. Um, it, it means that, although as I say, you have differences across the score Ultimately, they, they totally have his fingerprints all over it. So as long as you abide by that and don't go too far off piste, you'll end up making something that feels unified. And then, you know, in terms of the other unifying elements, um, you know, something that, you know, not necessarily loads of people talk about is the grade. So, you know, we've got a colorist, um, one colorist across the whole show. You know, you've got different DPs and different directors, but with the, the single, single colorist, um, you try to bring, although it's a varied look across the world, ultimately it all exists in the same kind of palette, roughly speaking. 
you know it's not like there's massive massive sepia washes and versus black and white versus this or that you know there's a kind of a relative tonality that's quite consistent so that's actually quite an important part of it especially when you're unifying things that are being shot in different places by different people and with sometimes slightly different styles um and then and then there's i suppose an editing style that i was trying to encourage uh, the editors with not in a particularly uh, spoken way let's say but trying to keep an eye on how tonality is brought through in editing which is to say that we've got a reasonably classical editing approach um which is you know reasonably fluid uh we've got some there's a few hard and fast rules that i used when jumping between worlds so for example from season one um for example a very very small thing from season one onwards was that when you jump from one world to the next we 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 make the cut between those two places uh extremely clear and coherent you don't ever cross over that world so if you're if you can imagine uh dramatically in editing in editing terms often what you do is when you're going from one scene to the next you sometimes do what you call a pre-lap which is you hear a bit of dialogue from the second scene ending the first and so we were quite rigorous from early on it's kind of started in the sand process in season one and then i made sure that we kept doing it in the editing of seasons two and three which is which is to make clear junctions and by doing that what you're hoping to do is make the transitions very clear for the audience so that they can keep up um, and don't hopefully feel that things you know become too too mushy uh in the journey across it but there's lots of little small things like that um that um hopefully help i mean one of the things in the first couple of episodes of season three which wasn't necessarily something we did elsewhere but in a in a kind of effort to to keep the distinctions between the worlds quite clear i got the sand team to go maybe slightly further which which by i mean slightly louder maybe on the atmospheres of the places so when you go to where asriel is which is in a gunway's world in the first episode um the the sense of environment is quite clear uh perhaps slightly louder sometimes than you would do in others but what it meant was that when you cut to a world especially a lot of unfamiliar worlds you immediately hopefully knew where you were even if visually it wasn't always obvious and then when mary returns there or sorry when mary turns up there in up two same thing so that you can use the same atmospheres that you've established so that hopefully the audience quite quickly understand that oh she is where everyone was in episode one so it's things like that that kind of you know quite um you know uh micro detail help keep the thing alive but hopefully in quite a subtle way yeah yeah it's really interesting the way that you're describing this is like kind of if you're doing your job well we really shouldn't notice precisely and we don't we just know where we're sat yeah. and you know we've seen the first couple of episodes twice now and yeah and that kind of counts for everything that goes for editing that goes for performance that goes for the way it's shot you know the show isn't kind of particularly showboating you know i think and you know russell the vfx supervisor you know the vfx are obviously a massive part of it i'm sure would probably say this say the same which you know for example the visual effects which are superb obviously aren't supposed to necessarily draw attention to themselves they're supposed to be quite um uh, absorbed into the piece so i think that that is something that i was trying to keep an eye on personally is how you keep everything absorbed into one and you you can obviously naturally a story goes through you know 
in basic terms goes through fast sections, slow sections, emotional, dramatic, funny, not whatever. So a whole range of things are going on all the time through the story and through every episode and across episodes. But if you keep it kind of, um, if you keep, keep things contained within, within a kind of range of palette, it tends to feel the same rather than going off on bonkers, different detours, um, which then start kind of, you know, pushing the audience a little bit and making them feel a bit unstable probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that must be really important in season three because we do shift dramatically from uh, quite a contained little story around two characters to this kind of bananas situation with the Malefa who are wheeling around and the angels and we've got to accept the angels are here and we're going to have to see them and talk to them. And was that something you were quite aware of, that like shift in tone from this like quite small story about Will and Lyra and their friendship to this like huge tons of stuff happening <laughs> no for sure it was it was everyone's concern you know from the top to the bottom about how you um how you keep this all fluid and the, the maletha um storyline in particular was probably like a primary concern for me because partly because it was incredibly expensive to do so you have to be really really specific about how you how you tell it it also involved going off and doing um a location shoot in spain for a lot of stuff with mary uh with simone um and it was uh, you know it was the thing i was most worried about going into it which actually weirdly maybe didn't end up being a particular problem but it was like something that i had that my brain was worrying on for to be honest about probably about six to nine months before we shot uh, on season three was how you do the language um and i was very concerned about how naturalistic that would feel um which which meant kind of for me trying to think through ways that you can do this you know how do you show a character um thrown into a completely new world uh soaking in a completely new culture but specifically you're going to have to show them talking to each other and it wasn't actually the question of whether or not um an animal can look good talking because that was you know russell and visual effects's um area for me it was more about in story terms how as an audience are you going to understand the process and journey that mary goes through so that took a lot of fine tuning and a part of that was we we hired a uh, a conlang uh, linguist um, called Richard Littauer, who um, helped construct the language based on some keywords from the Pullman text. Uh, so you had straf and different words like that. So he kind of used that as a way, as a jumping off point for how the language could use. And then Simone had to learn it and become, you know, kind of fluent in terms of the lines that we had. And then from my point of view, particularly as was kind of, as we were putting it, as we were shooting it, actually writing shooting and putting it together in in the edit it just became about how do you follow mary's journey through that without resorting to what i would feel are slightly more obvious um uh ways of tackling it for example voiceover you could have layered a huge amount of first person narration over all of that which some of that was in the original script as a way of kind of helping a reader through how those scenes would play but it was it was going to be very very difficult. I felt to play that on screen and make it interesting because you would just have a lot of kind of noise in your ear. I felt I thought it would be much more interesting to um, 
play through Mary's eyes as much as possible, you know, and mm-hmm. and hopefully get a sense of the passing of time and a sense of how slowly, slowly she kind of constructs this her own understanding. Yeah, for sure. We did both comment watching it how we really enjoyed the way the subtitles were filling in it just felt and the way that they were like a little bit dusty it was lovely yeah <laughs> yeah was great. And it did feel very natural that was something that we came up with kind of like reasonably late i mean I, I had that we had had that thought early on and we had some references of films in mind i i'd kind of been thinking of bits and pieces like that but we weren't until you have all the material in front of you and because of the way it was shot it was almost shot like a lot of mary's stuff in spain in particular uh, apart from very scene-specific things that were written, a lot of it was quite loose um, in terms of, you know, moments. Um, and then it became, okay, how many of these moments do you need to tell the story? And then eventually when I was sitting with the editor, Ian, uh, who predominantly did that section, and particularly in episode five, like the opening section, which I've always kind of thought of as a bit of a short story, the idea that you you bring the audience up to speed in one single hit. Actually, it's two hits across the episode. But, you know, rather than... I kind of felt that rather that it would be more effective than peppering small traditional scenes uh, across a series of episodes, I thought it'd be better to do like a relatively deep dive into the Mary experience across one episode. Um, and the subtitle, the subtitles were a really good way to kind of ground us in understanding kind of almost word by word how she absorbs and learns to repeat and, and learns to interact. Mm-hmm. And Simone gives you a huge amount because she just feels tremendously like naturalistic throughout it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So before we wrap up, we do have a few questions that we ask everyone that we interview. Um, so we will shoot, we'll <laughs> shoot those at you. Um, first one is, what would your demon be if you could have a demon? Well, I've always said it was the naked mole rat, which is a, a really, really unappealing, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, unappealing but very robust animal. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I mean, you can get it. You can see me. If you could go back to before you began this whole process, before you started your His Dark Materials adventure, what is one piece of advice that you would give yourself before you got involved with this project? <laughs> uh, uh, to, to keep... Oh, boy. Hmm. Uh, keep with it i don't know i kind of feel that the whole thing was a learning process for me it was a four-year process and you know everything you ever do you, you learn something every single time but to be honest you, you couldn't have imagined before you walked into it the things that you would learn or experience across it so so all i would say is uh, to myself is yeah just keep going ah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so if you had an alethiometer and you could read it what question would you ask it? What am I? What should I buy everyone for Christmas? Because I'm slightly running out of ideas. <laughs> yes, that's a good I, one. I, I, I've definitely reached the limit of my imagination. So every year you've got to come up with new stuff. It's so frustrating. <laughs> I know it's just the same old thing, isn't it? I, I, I kind of understand. Kind of understand why my dad buys me basically yeah. exactly the same thing every Christmas at this point. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and finally, if you had the subtle knife, what kind of world would you want to cut through to? It can be a world from the series or it can be anything you can imagine you might oh, find gosh. with the knife. Uh, ooh, wouldn't mind working in 1970s Hollywood. Oh. Not, not, not the politics, let's be clear. <laughs> let's be clear that the, po- the politics might not be the nicest bit. 
but as a kind of creative uh, environment and a creative time, that must have been quite something. I, I'd go in about 67. I'd go in about 67 and maybe get out by uh, 76. <laughs> great. So specific. I really like that. Yeah, it's very specific. It's a great answer. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, thank you for joining us, Stephen. It was really nice to speak to you. It's, thanks very much. Yeah, it's really yeah, nice to so get uh, a pers- your perspective on everything. Um, but yeah, and we... Uh, I guess we hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you enjoy the show as it goes. I look forward to hearing your commentary. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much. Yeah, thanks Great. so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow. Well, indeed. Was was so it? much fun. Great. <laughs> so much fun, honestly. Oh, I just love talking to the people on the season, uh, on the series. It's just so great. And Stephen had so many interesting things to say, things that we haven't heard before, areas that we've not delved into before. It was really great. Yeah, so much fun. And also just one of those roles that has like a, a lay person that doesn't know a lot about TV production or any kind of production, really. Like you just wouldn't even know exists without mm-hmm. having great things like this interview just pat myself on the back now <laughs> to find out about it because it's yeah. just yeah it's amazing how many people are involved with this show and also how far-reaching so much mm-hmm. of their input is across yeah. the show in order to make it happen which is amazing mm-hmm. it honestly i mean you said it in the interview but it blows my mind how things that we notice but don't notice on a conscious level so when we're moving between worlds and the thing that Stephen said about like not letting dialogue cross over or like having different turns things that we notice on like an unconscious level that they have to put so much thought into that always blows my mind I love that kind of stuff yeah like the fact that somebody decided that Mm. so that your watching journey would be easier would make more sense would like leave you not feeling confused and would keep you enthralled in the plot Mm mm-hmm it's like, that's so cool that people are, yeah, making those decisions to make the show what it is and to make it so immersive. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. I mean, God, can we just interview every single person that's ever worked on the show, please? That would be great. Yeah, let's just get the IMDb up. Everyone, everyone with a credit. And then also, because we know IMDb misses people out, everyone without a credit too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. And we're hoping that we'll be able to bring you some more fun stuff, some more interviews uh, around season three and the rest of the series. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to speak to as many people as possible. I'm so excited that we got to speak to Stephen. That was such a delight. That was so lovely. It was. It was. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash HDMPod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Fair, and when I'm not talking to Stephen, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Still Into You Pod. 
I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about some very exciting behind-the-scenes His Dark Material stuff, I am making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter and TikTok at Rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings, and an even bigger thank you to Stephen for sharing his time with us today. And we'll see you soon, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Stephen, bye. bye.